There you go. There you go. Hey, on the screens behind me, you'll see a picture of Winnie the Pooh. You've been looking at Winnie the Pooh all summer long. Most of you are concerned as to why that's been the case. But hopefully by now you've picked up on the fact that in the story of Winnie the Pooh uh, and, and the, is it the honey tree? When, uh, which story is it where he goes to Rabbit's house and he eats too much honey? Doesn't he? He eats too much honey and then he gets stuck in the door on the way out. And we've kind of been having a little bit of fun with that story because the New Living Translation of the Bible translates Proverbs chapter 25, verse 16 this way. Do you like honey? To which everybody said, of course we like honey. Honey is good. And Pooh Bear said, oh, I love honey. Do you like honey? Don't eat too much or it'll make you sick or it'll make you get stuck in rabbit's door, or it will do whatever sorts of bad things. You see, there's a lot of things in this world that we like that are good. I mean, honey's good, right? It's good. But can you have too much of a good thing? And so I've been having a little fun. You can decide whether or not you've been having any fun, but I certainly have had some fun taking a look at this from a spiritual angle. There are things in our spiritual lives that are just like honey. They're good, they're pure, they're healthy, they're sticky. No, that's not right. But perhaps sometimes there are ways in which we have misused or abused things that are good and pure and healthy. Can you ever have too much of a good thing? We need to always be aware of the importance of, and yes, pun intended, the sweet spot. The sweet spot, not too much, not too little. And so we've taken a look at these different kinds of topics uh, and some of them have made us a little bit nervous as we've asked the question, is there such a thing as too much faith? Is there such a thing as too much prayer? Is there such a thing as, as working too hard? Today, I wanna ask, is there such a thing as too much kindness? And I have to tell you, as I prepared this message this week, uh, Kelly, who yes, I'm going to pick on, laughed. Laughed and laughed and laughed and, and said, Dan, this is the message you were born to preach. Too much kindness. No one has ever accused me of being too kind. Yeah, getting blessed there, amen, amen, there it is. I want to ask you the question, when was the last time that you had the thought, you know, the real problem in the world today is that people are just too darn kind. When was the last time you thought, boy, I'd really like to spend some more time with my Christian friends, but I have trouble being with such nice people. You know, we don't tend to think that way. We love kindness and we tend to think there could never be too much kindness. And you know what? We read the Bible and we find out we're right. Kindness is a wonderful thing. Kindness is a good thing. Look at a handful of verses that I collected. These came to mind just from the New Testament. Galatians chapter 5 gives us the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says these are the things that will naturally be produced in your life as you cultivate your relationship with the Holy Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, and right in the middle of the list, kindness. The fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people. So in other words, he's saying, specifically as Christians, here's how you're supposed to act. Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with kindness. And then in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 32, Paul says, Be kind and compassionate to one another. When I was young and I would get into an argument with my brothers or my cousins, 
My mother would quote Ephesians chapter 4:32 to us. But she knew it in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, in the uh, Old King James version. So she would say, "Be kind to one another." She sounded just like that, didn't she, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, just lay hands on her and pray for her right now. Be boys, be kind to one another. So this be ye kind, I didn't know how to be ye anything. But this, this be ye kind was ingrained in my head from childhood that that's what good Christian boys do. They just, they just be ye kind all the time. And after reading this verse and having it hammered into your head as a child and reading other verses like it, you might think that our highest priority in our interactions with each other is to be kind. Kindness is what's most important. You might think that true friends are known because they're only ever kind to one another. And anyone who ever says or does something that rubs you the wrong way must be your enemy. Kind of sounds like the world we live in today, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like this kind of social political correctness that we live in. The social rules that seem to dictate that you have to live in philosophical harmony with each other in all circumstances, no matter what. In the world we live in today, no longer are we allowed to disagree. No longer are we allowed to dissent. No longer are we allowed to question or challenge. People that fail to affirm what somebody else believes, what do we call them? Haters. That's what we call them today, right? If I say something and you say, no, I'm not sure that's right, you know what you are? You're a hater. You're a hater. That's not kind. You're a hater. I'm looking at you, section left. You're all haters. You're all haters over here. You know what? how the world works today? The world works today this way. You get to speak your truth. And the only socially acceptable thing I'm allowed to do is to celebrate it. No matter what. Because the God of this age forbid that I should hurt your feelings. And then, I know we've got Winnie the Pooh on the screen, but let me take your minds back to another classic Disney film. Do we remember Bambi? Do we remember Thumper when his words got out of control? Thumper, what did your dad say? And he takes that big foot and he swims. If you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. Pretty good thumper impersonation, don't you think? I worked on that for a while. If you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. How many of us have heard that lesson? How many of us have told our kids that lesson when they were at each other's throats? You know what I'm saying? Not my children, they're perfect in every way. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. And then, and then, we open our Bibles. We get eventually to the book of Proverbs, the 27th chapter, and we read verse 6, and it says this. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend. Well, I thought if they wounded me, they weren't my friend. I thought they were a hater. No, the word of God says wounds from a friend can be trusted. Other translations say they're trustworthy. Like you, 
you can build on that. They're right. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but the folks that only have nice and kind things to say to you, sounds like an enemy who just wants to multiply kisses. What are we going to do that? What are we going to do, excuse me, with that? Apparently, in God's design, this whole being kind thing isn't as simple and straightforward as we thought. Apparently, kindness, at least in the moment, is not the end-all, be-all virtue that we thought it is. Apparently, the ones who speak most kindly to us might, could be, in fact, our enemies. And the true role of a friend might be, in certain circumstances, to challenge, to rebuke, or even, as this verse says, to wound. Maybe there's a sweet spot for kindness after all. And with that in mind, I want to turn back to the Apostle Paul, who wrote the words, all of the verses, that we read early on about kindness. The Apostle Paul was clearly a proponent of kindness. He's the one who wrote all of those verses, the be ye kind, the, the, the fruit of the spirit is kindness, the clothe yourselves, dearly beloved, with kindness. He wrote all of those words. But more than any other Bible character, I find in his stories, a willingness to dig deep into relationships, to challenge when necessary, to forego the easy choice to just merely say something nice and instead choose perhaps a wisely timed, spirit-anointed word of rebuke when necessary. And I can think of three perfect examples of this in the life of the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to give them to you today. The first example shows us this. Kindness can't become an excuse to avoid confronting sin. It can't be an excuse to avoid confronting sin. Paul, as you likely know, had relationships with a variety of early churches throughout Europe and mostly in Asia. And many of the books of our New Testament are the letters that he wrote to these churches that he had relationship with. One of, I think, the most fascinating relationships we read about is the one between Paul and the church in Corinth. Paul had planted the church in Corinth on one of his missionary journeys. And the book of Acts tells us that he stayed there and remained as their pastor and their primary leader for a long time. At the very least, 18 months, perhaps a little bit longer than that even. He was with them for a good long time and he got to know them very well. And as Paul traveled after that, after he left Corinth, as he traveled, he continued to write them again and again. They were a church that was very, very close to his heart, perhaps unlike the other churches, perhaps on a level or of a quality that was just a little bit different. It's clear that Paul had a special place in his heart for the Corinthians. We know that Paul wrote at least three letters to them, perhaps four or even more than that, although only two of those letters have survived history. The two letters that did survive, you can find in your Bible, the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of 2 Corinthians. But in those letters, they refer to other letters that he wrote, we just don't have them. Now in Paul's letters, Paul often would address specific questions that the Corinthians had sent him. You see, they were a young church. 
after he left, they were being led by young, rather inexperienced believers. And so they were prone to make some mistakes along the way or perhaps have some questions. And on some occasions, Paul would answer the questions. On other uh, occasions, he would have to correct their mistakes. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, at one point, Paul refers them to a previous letter that he had written. Now, maybe this previous letter is 1 Corinthians, which we've all read. Or maybe it's one of the letters that we know existed, we just don't have. They're lost to history. We're not exactly sure. But in either case, he refers them to a previous letter that he has written. And he acknowledges, you know, that letter that I wrote you hurt your feelings. And I'm aware of that. I know about it. But look at what he says about that. Reading now from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. He says, I see that my letter hurt you. Remember, this is the church he loved. These were his friends. And he says, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. And yet, now I'm happy. Well, not because I made you sorry, of course, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. I know that my words hurt you, but I have joy over what that resulted in. Your sorrow led you to repentance. Paul's words apparently were pointed enough that they were hurtful. But it was the pain of Paul's words that caused the Corinthians to recognize their sin and change their ways. Pain can often be the very thing that promotes change. You know, if you read the Bible, you become very familiar with the, the disease leprosy, right? We have it in the Old Testament. We have it in the New Testament. Very common disease in the ancient world. For the most part, eradicated in the modern first world today. None of us are terribly concerned, I would assume, about contracting leprosy. And as a matter of fact, we have kind of these mythological uh, ideas of what precisely leprosy is. Most of us, when we hear leprosy, we think of guys wrapped in rags, walking around with their arms falling off, right? And that's actually not at all what leprosy is. Here's my understanding of how leprosy really works. Leprosy is a bacterial condition that attacks your nerves and makes it impossible for you to feel pain. And so leprosy doesn't exactly cause your limbs to fall off. But what happens is when somebody has advanced leprosy, they no longer feel pain. And in the ancient world in particular, that was incredibly problematic because they could get wounded and not realize that they were wounded. Imagine somebody who can't feel pain handling a knife and accidentally cutting into their finger and not even realizing that they've cut into their finger where you or I might nick our finger with a knife and then you know, pull it away, ow! A leper wouldn't do that. They would just keep on sawing away at the apple or the fruit or whatever they were sawing until they saw the blood dripping down. Or imagine in the ancient world going to tend the fire and stoking the fire and not realizing that you had grabbed in your hand one of the burning ashes until you begin to smell that putrid smell of flesh burning. You or I would have dropped the, the stake immediately, but a leper wouldn't know to do that. And so what might be just a, just a flesh wound for you or I for a leper would become something far more serious and lead to infection, lead perhaps to gangrene. That was how leprosy worked. And Jesus, as I'm sure you'll remember, had kind of a specialty in healing lepers, right? Jesus healed a lot of lepers 
in his day. I want you to think about that, knowing what leprosy is. When Jesus healed lepers, what he was really doing was restoring to them, giving them the gift of pain. That's what Jesus was doing with lepers. He was giving them the gift of pain so that their bodies would not be destroyed. Think about that. Perhaps for Sue's birthday, we could give her the gift of pain. (laughs) I don't think any of you would like that either, right? But that's what Jesus was doing every time he healed a leper. He was giving them the gift of pain so that their bodies would not be destroyed. The wounds of a friend can be trusted. Why? Because sometimes they bring us pain, which can lead us to repentance from sin. They have the potential to save us from destruction. Let me give you another example. Kindness can't become an excuse to avoid revealing hypocrisy. Revealing hypocrisy. The early church, right? After the time of Jesus, the church is is being birthed. It's beginning to flourish. We have really two centers of influence in the early church. In Jerusalem, we have James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter, who are Jewish men in a Jewish city, leading Jewish believers in following a Jewish Messiah. That's what's going on in Jerusalem. And then in Antioch, we have Paul and Barnabas. Now, Antioch is not a Jewish city. Antioch is a Gentile city. And so Paul and Barnabas are sharing the gospel with Gentiles who are saying in droves, oh my goodness, we want to follow Jesus too. And so they're following Jesus. But that leads the early church to a conundrum. Do Gentiles who want to follow Jesus have to become Jewish first? in order to follow Jesus, because until that point, the only folks who ever followed Jesus were Jews. So are you allowed to get on this train here, or do you have to go all the way back to Judaism in order to get on this train? That was a problem that the early church had to figure out. It was a conundrum they had in Acts chapter 15. We read that they recognized, they decided rightfully so, then no, you don't have to become Jewish first. You don't have to become Jewish first. It's okay for Gentiles to become followers of Jesus. And so Paul in Antioch, a Gentile city, goes on preaching the gospel, hanging out in Antioch, going to church with Gentiles, hanging out with Gentiles, which meant inevitably that Paul would get invited over to dinner at the Gentiles' house. Now, if you go to a Gentile's house for dinner, which is kind of funny to say because most of us are Gentiles in this room. If you go to a Gentile's house for dinner, the problem is they're likely to serve pork chops or bacon or a nice Virginia ham, barbecue pulled pork sandwiches, or maybe in the summer, they're just gonna throw a few bratwurst on the grill. That's what the Gentiles would serve. And Paul, a good Jewish man, had a choice to make. And Paul's choice was, praise the Lord, let's dig in. (laughs) Okay, Paul ate with the Gentiles. And then one day Peter came from Jerusalem to visit. And you know what Peter did? He said, praise the Lord and pass the bacon. I'm eating with the Gentiles too. And it went that way for a good long time until 
A few other guys from Jerusalem who worked for James decided to visit Antioch. And when they showed up in town, Peter got a little nervous in the service of the Lord. And he stopped hanging out with those Gentiles. He stopped going over to their houses for dinner. He stopped staying after church for the potluck. He stopped hanging out and he withdrew. Now you could make the argument that when Paul noticed that, the kind thing for him to do would be to respect Peter's privacy. Let Peter make his own choices. Don't rock the boat. And maybe the wiser road here is to just wait patiently until Peter inevitably goes back home to Jerusalem and then everything can kind of get back to normal. Wouldn't that be kind of the nice, kind way of dealing with this situation? Well, that's not what Paul did. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells us exactly what he did. He refers to Peter here by the name he called him. He called him Cephas. And so Paul writes, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face (laughs) because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Paul says, Cephas, the big guy who used to hang out with Jesus, the guy so tough, none of us would want to go with him at all. I mean, the one, Peter, cock-a-doodle-doo, Peter. I opposed him to his face. I opposed him to his face. In other words, I had a really uncomfortable conversation with Peter because I recognized that his hypocrisy was ruining our credibility. So I had to have a really uncomfortable conversation. We can surmise that Peter didn't enjoy that conversation. I can remember uh, going off to college. Um, I was a good church kid as a teenager in high school. I'll be blunt, I was a goody two-shoes. Thank you very much. Despite the things I have revealed to my parents since becoming a pastor. (laughs) I went away to college, I moved into the dorms for the most part, stayed on the straight and narrow. But I began to compromise in some ways. Began to compromise in some ways. And I recognized that over the course of the the years that I lived on my own as a college student, some of my moral credibility began to erode. And I remember one night hanging around uh, in in, in, in dorms with a bunch of my friends. And I got into it with one of my buddies. Now, it wasn't a big fight. I mean, nobody was going to throw any punches, but we were probably playing video games or something and doing something stupid. And somebody said something that they shouldn't have said. Okay, it was probably me. (laughs) But we got into it and we started barking at each other. And I turned to my buddy and he had just said something mean to me and I turned to him and I barked right back at him. And I used a few choice words that I won't repeat from the pulpit this morning, okay? (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) And I remember my friend, who was not really a Christian by any means, just turned to me with kind of a stupid looking grin on his face. And he said, man, I remember when you wouldn't swear at all. Have you ever had a moment like that? Where it's like, oh. And I said something and, and left, went over to my bedroom. But I, I remember that to this day. Sometimes 
We need to hear the painful truth of our own hypocrisy, don't we? Sometimes we need to hear that no matter how much it hurts. Paul, I believe, was a good enough friend, as the book of Proverbs would say, a faithful enough friend to Peter that he wasn't going to let his, his own impulse to be kind get in the way of that. He wasn't going to let it get in the way of what Peter really needed to hear for the sake of the gospel. Let me give you one last example. Kindness can't become an excuse to avoid mending relationships. And managing relationships, I think, is perhaps the most difficult part of life. Every one of us is imperfect. We are rough around the edges like nobody's rough. I was thinking of this this week. I I was uh, rebuilding some of the wood on our front porch. I had to lay planks uh, pull up the old planks that were rotten and buy new, new decking and, and lay that down and screw them in the, the boards right next to each other. You can tell by the way I'm talking about this right now that uh, this is not my primary spiritual gift, right? But Tyler and I went to Menards, we bought all the wood we need, we measured it and cut it and started screwing it down. I live in a, a home that is not perfect. And so the front of the house kind of does this. And the supports on the porch kind of do this. And the boards that we bought kind of do this. And in my mind, that would all even out and they would all lay together perfectly, right? (laughs) But, uh, you know, we can all ask Jim Cahall afterwards, this is not how this works, right? Am I right about that? No, no. And so we take these imperfect boards and we're trying to fit them in next to each other so there's, you know, no seam or no gap. It just, it doesn't work very well. And relationships are a lot like that. We might look pretty good at first glance, but every one of us is imperfect. Every one of us is skewed. Every one of us is bent. And moreover, we're always changing, right? We don't have the decency to have the same imperfections all the time. We're always cycling into new ones, right? So we're always changing. And bringing my fluid imperfections together in relationship with your fluid imperfections, this this can seem a pretty impossible task. And now add the complication that Christian ministry presents. The gospel compels us to treat people differently than the world treats them. It says something about loving your enemies or something loosely translated, right? And and so we're Christians and we're compelled by this different set of rules, but the rules can be difficult to discern and even harder to follow. And, you know, we just think about that. It's amazing any of us remain friends outside the help of the Holy Spirit. It was like that in the ancient world. Paul, as a matter of fact, had an old friend by the name of Philemon. Philemon, as it happened, owned a slave by the name of Onesimus. Philemon most likely owned a number of slaves, but one slave we know about for sure was a man by the name of Onesimus. And one day Onesimus ran away from Paul, I'm sorry, ran away from Philemon, and he ended up on Paul's doorstep. Now Paul's doorstep, as it would happen at the time, was at the local jail, because Paul was in jail again. But Onesimus ran to Paul anyhow and said, hey, you need to help me. I just escaped from Philemon's home. We don't have too many details on what exactly occurred between Paul and Onesimus, but apparently 
Paul took the opportunity to share the gospel with Onesimus more accurately, more completely, and Onesimus gave his life to the Lord. And Onesimus stayed and and ministered to Paul for a while while Paul continued to be in prison. And then one day Paul said what I think many of us would agree to be the unthinkable to Onesimus. He said, okay, Onesimus, now it's time for you to go back to Philemon. And this truth has become one of those things that has been incredibly difficult for the church to wrestle through and figure out. It was used, not surprisingly, in the 19th century to support the idea that good Christians own slaves and that the Bible supported the idea of slavery. I hope you'll not be too surprised to find out that I think that's, as you say, kooky talk. Not what the Bible means at all. But... We have this problem. Paul is telling Onesimus, okay, now the thing is, you have to go back to Philemon. And so he tells Onesimus, I'm sending you back. I want you to go back, and I'm going to give you this letter to read to Philemon when you get there. Are you ready for this? In front of his entire household. In front of his entire church. I want you to stand up and read this letter to everybody. And that letter exists In your Bible, it's the shortest letter of Paul's that we have. It's it's the book of Philemon. And in that letter of instruction, let me quote just three verses for it. Philemon, verse 17. This is Paul addressing the slaveholder Philemon regarding his former slave, Onesimus. He says this, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. And then here's the kicker. Are you ready for this? Not to mention that you owe me your very self. Whoa. Not to mention. I could mention it, but I'm not going to mention it. So I'll just mention it. You owe me your very self. We have no idea what that means. Had Paul saved Philemon's life at one point? Had he gotten him out of debt? Um, Is he referring to, in the spiritual sense, I I shared the gospel with you, which is why you are now saved and a creator? We don't know. It doesn't really matter. Paul's just saying, you know what? No matter what you think about this relationship, this man is your brother, and I expect you to treat him as such. Whole other sermon to be taught here about racial reconciliation, about class warfare, about social strata and things like this. No, the Bible never says thou shalt not own a slave, but the gospel makes it impossible. The gospel makes it impossible. He says, welcome him back, but guess what? Now he's your brother. Now he's your brother. And do you remember that I told you that letter is being read in front of Philemon's entire household, in front of Philemon's entire church family, in front of anyone else in that community who might also have been a slave. These guys are your brothers and your sisters. But back to the point, just think about Paul's position here. If he wanted to be kind, if he wanted to avoid awkwardness, if he wanted to avoid hurt feelings, what would he have done? Well, I could imagine him helping Onesimus on his way. Okay, Onesimus, you're saved here. Jesus loves you. That's great. Go forth. Go forth and and live a good life. But go that way. And while you go that way, I'm going to send a letter back this way to Philemon. And I'm just going to tell Philemon, Philemon, just let it go. Just 
let it go. I've sent Onesimus on. You're not going to have to see him anymore. Just let it go. You go this way. I'll keep Philemon over there. And obviously, we won't invite you both over to the same party. You guys won't be in the same room together. That's just too much to ask, isn't it? Well, not in a kingdom where it said we will be recognized first and foremost by the love we have for each other. When relationships are that important, sometimes it takes the faithful wounds of a friend to help reconcile what's broken. Church, the kingdom of God is a big place. But it is not big enough for any of us to hide from relationships that might make us feel awkward or uncomfortable. It's not that big. Mending relationships is a central part of the gospel. And we cannot allow our impulse toward kindness to get in the way. There's kind of two sides to this message. As I conclude, as I land the plane today, let me tell you this. As I put these words together, I was aware of kind of two different audiences that might hear these words. Two sides to the same coin. The first side is this. Perhaps you're observing a situation that has given you concern or pause because you see a brother or a sister in obvious sin. Uh, You recognize a hypocrisy or you see a relationship that's broken, but it needs to be repaired. And, And you're wondering, what do I do? What do I do? To get involved here is gonna be dirty and messy and there could be some hurt feelings. What do I do? And my direct answer in light of everything I've said today is this, of course, of course, of course, lead with kindness, right? Tongue in cheek throughout this series of sermons, we don't really mean that you shouldn't pray or you shouldn't have faith or you shouldn't be kind or you shouldn't work hard. That's not really what Garrett and I have been saying. Of course, of course, of course, lead with kindness. Paul, who we've been talking about all morning, was also asked at one point by the Corinthian church to describe love, agape Christian love. And anybody that's been to a wedding knows exactly what Paul said. He said love is patient and love is right. And that is how we are required to live one with another. So clearly, clearly, clearly lead with kindness. My point about the sweet spot is this. Being kind doesn't mean we avoid the truth. It doesn't mean we substitute what needs to be said for what we just might feel more comfortable saying. It doesn't mean we just stick to what sounds kind. Too many times I've heard Christians in that circumstance where they they see a hypocrisy, they see an obvious sin, they see a relationship that's broken and needs to be repaired, and their comment is, I'm not here to be his judge. (laughs) I really don't like that sentiment. I'm not here to be his judge. I'm not here to be hers judge. In other words, I'm not going to say anything about it. I really don't like that sentiment. Can I tell you this? The gospel isn't asking you to be anybody's judge. But you were created to help your fellow believers avoid some really big mistakes. God gave you to me because he knew that I'm kind of a dope. 
And I'm prone to make some big mistakes sometimes. And he gave you to me so that you could help me avoid some of those mistakes. Church, would you do your job? You know, we we use this phrase sometimes in life. Well, I'm not my brother's keeper, right? Well, I'm not my brother's keeper. Like, you do you. You know, I'm I'm not getting involved. I'm not my brother's keeper. Do we recognize that that idea of being your brother's keeper is a biblical reference to a biblical story? Way back at the beginning of the Bible, when Cain and Abel got into it, and God asked Cain, so how's Abel doing? And Cain's like, oh, am I my brother's keeper? The, the, the deep, deep irony to me is that God essentially answers, yes, you are your brother's keeper. That's why I put you here. Do your job. I have this really random, vivid memory of playing basketball in gym class in the seventh grade, a, a particular day when we were having a pickup basketball game. And this was just right after the tryouts for the seventh grade basketball team, right after the results had been announced. And there were two kids in my gym class that had made the basketball team. And they happened to be a part of this pickup game, one on each team. And one of the guys that had just made the basketball team in our junior high had the ball and he threw an ill-advised pass directly across the lane. And predictably, the pass was stolen by a member of the opposite team who then had nobody in front of him and just dribbled down the court and made a nice, easy layup for two points. And as soon as that play was over, the other guy who had also made the basketball team but was on the other team, the team that had just scored off of friend number one's mistake, that guy turned to the guy who had made the mistake and very kindly took him aside and said, here's what you did wrong. You never on defense want to make a pass across the lane. Look to make a pass back, look to make a pass forward, but never make a pass across the lane. Nine times out of 10, what just happened is going to happen. The other team's going to pick it off and they're going to score too easy. And one of the guys on his team said, why are you telling him that? He's on the other side. And I remember my buddy saying, no, he's not. He and I just made the basketball team. Starting next week, we've got our first game. We're going to be playing together. And we needed to all be better than that. I remember that moment to this day because I feel like, boy, the church could learn that lesson well, couldn't they? To just kindly take a brother aside and say, I know you just made a mistake. Let me help you see where it was and how it was so that we can all be better. With kindness, with love, with prayerful wisdom, perhaps it's time for you to gently speak up. I told you two sides of the coin. Here's the other side. Maybe a brother or a sister in the Lord has recently done or said something to you that hurt you. And maybe whatever they said was anything but kind. And so your impulse, understandably, was to reject it because so-and-so was just being a jerk. And they obviously aren't your real friend. Let me say this about that. Maybe they did get it wrong. Maybe they did handle it poorly. We've already said, every one of us is broken. Every one of us are like those deck boards that swerve all over the way and have knot holes and notches out of them, right? Maybe they did get it wrong. Okay, I get it. But don't reject it just because it didn't feel kind. 
I want to ask you today, in light of what Paul has shown us, can you get past your hurt and reconsider, just reconsider what was said and ask yourself these questions. Is there any chance, is there any chance that God is shaping you? Is there any chance that God is forming you? Is there any chance that God is challenging you to grow? Is there any chance that these wounds from this friend are indeed faithful? And could it be that the pain of a a less than kind word or action was exactly what it's going to take to make you look more like Jesus? That's the sweet spot. That's the sweet spot when it comes to kindness. I'm going to invite you to just give those words a a moment or two of reflection and thought. You can begin a a prayerful posture and attitude as, as we conclude the service today. Father, would you help us in this moment to bring to mind those interactions that we have with each other day to day, all the time, really, where we step on each other's toes, where we needle each other, where where it just doesn't feel very kind and it doesn't feel very good. God, I see a couple of things happening in those circumstances. First of all, we have a tendency to goof it up. We aren't good at this. And in many cases, Father, we need to repent of unkind words and unkind actions that we have taken. Lord, would you bring those to mind right now so that we can deal with them appropriately? and grow beyond and move beyond. But God, even in those situations and in others, we recognize in which sometimes it's precisely the pain, the relational pain that we feel that you are calling us to grow. I'm reminded this morning, Lord, that the book of Proverbs also tells us, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's your design over humanity. That's how you created us to be. I don't imagine for a moment that that piece of iron enjoys being in the furnace. I don't imagine for a moment that it enjoys being struck by the hammer. I don't imagine for a moment that it enjoys being ground down on the wheel, but as iron sharpens iron, so one person another. And so Lord, as much as it might be just kind of the exact opposite of what our bellies want us to do, today, Lord, we bless. We bless those who have hurt us. We bless those who have been unkind to us. God, help us to see where your word was and is in the midst of that pain. Lord, I pray for these people in this church today that you would help us to be wise about the ways in which we are to speak challenging, not unkind, but challenging words one to another. Help us to never use our our social impulse towards don't say anything at all as an excuse to not say anything at all. Rather, Lord, we ask today that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would fill our mouths with your words, that we might be strong, that we might be strengthened, that we might be made like Jesus. Help us, we ask, to find the sweet spot. 
It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everybody says.